My mother died in her middle eighties, and um, she had never kept any of the letters. Well, ours was not a household, I think, where you know things like that were stored or filed. And soon after, there was a letter of condolence to my uh, my father from. May, Cousin May's husband. Cousin May had died three or four years before that and back came a beautifully packaged collection of letters, even with a ribbon around them. Every one of them had been kept by the cousin from the time they began to go out. It's a long way to Tipperary It's a long way to go It's a long way to Tipperary To the sweetest girl I know February 16th, 1917. My dear cousin May, you've been wondering, I'm sure, why you've had no letter from me for some time. But weeks ago I did write, enclosing some photos of myself and the family at Clune Crim. They were all returned to me with a notification that any photographs or pictorial illustrations would not be allowed into the United States. See, May, what a change this wretched war has made even to something as harmless as our correspondence. I was delighted to hear that you're so happy with your new husband, Leo. All girls are not that lucky, May. You must give me some words of advice. I haven't any notion of getting married for another while, though I reached my majority this past Christmas. I came here to El Finn six months ago, to a good clothing business, and have taken complete charge of the ladies' drapery and millinery. When the war is over, I might work in partnership with my brothers Jack and Tommy, D.V. We're all keen to advance ourselves, and it's only 20 miles from home. I'd like to be near Mother. She's not young now, and I know she misses me. We all had a dandy time together at Christmas, dancing and spooning every night with the friends. Little Kitty, at only 13, is nearly a professional musician. She can work at any instrument plays and sings at the local dances. She's quite in demand. April 18th, 1926. My dear May, there is sad news. Mother died suddenly of a heart attack in March. It has been a dreadful time. Only you would understand what her loss means to me. Herself and your mamma have met again in heaven, I hope. They were so attached as young girls here before they were separated. When Kitty went up to her room to take her tray, she discovered her already dead. The shock has been a painful one, and Kitty is badly affected by it. I cannot realise that she has left us forever. Father is troubled, as he fears she had something to say to him before she died, and he hadn't been there. I had been so settled and contented, May, since my marriage to Joe five years ago. He's the nicest and kindest of men. I wish you could meet him. I have three babies now. The eldest will be starting school soon. I must have my family group taken for you when I'm out of mourning. 
I regret so much that I've no picture of mother. We always planned that when she came to Dublin she would have a proper portrait taken. There are no specialists in photography in a place like Ballinloch. But she didn't leave home much, so the opportunity was missed. Let's keep the family tie knotted in remembrance of our dear mother's May. With love, Mary. August the 8th, 1926. My dear May, the old home in Clune Crim is very changed, with Kitty out all day at her business, and Jack and Tommy so taken up with work at their garage. The boys are slow about getting married, although they have the means and a fine home. I think they're not lovers of the ladies. The girls will be strange to them when they do take the plunge. I live in Leakslip, County Kildare a fine, healthy country place, away from the bustle of the city. Joe works hard for us. He's a clerk with the Great Southern Railway and travels in and out to Kingsbridge Station by train every day. Sometimes I walk up the station road to meet him in the evening with my pram load. We had such an enjoyable Christmas in Ballinloch, little thinking it was the last with poor mother, and she was so happy. And such a musical one! Kitty is now an expert with the fiddle. She travels about the country with the Cayley band at weekends. It gives her a great interest and takes her out of herself. They say I resemble you very much, May, judging from the photo you sent. What colour eyes have you got? Mine are a dark brown. Good black hair, too. All that I have of it now since I got the new shingle. When I made the decision to get it cut, Joe made me keep the long locks in a bag for a souvenir. I'm afraid I'm showing a few grey ribs already, even at thirty. May, do save up and make the trip to Ireland. How we'd love to see you. Your letter sounds so nice and natural. We'd give you a right good time. Kitty isn't company keeping. No sign of marriage, although I was married at her age. She's of a very quiet disposition, despite the gallivanting. Entirely different to me. I was never happy except when I was flirting. Doesn't carry you far in life to be too quiet, eh? Love, Mary.
January the 7th, 1931, 22 Ellesmere Avenue. My dear May, as you'll see from the new address, we've moved into the city. As the children grew older, now we have a fourth, we had to consider their education and the schools and colleges are very much better in the city. We actually own this house. It's quite roomy, all modern conveniences, including a bathroom, and situated close to the Phoenix Park, the largest city park in the world, they say. Here, the Eucharistic Congress will be celebrated in 1932. I urge you strongly to come over for this great event, and my brothers and sister have asked me to press you. Have you not an insurance policy or anything you could mortgage? The trip is so very long it will take some money, though fares on sea and rail will be cheap, we are told. And you still have your freedom to travel with no children to tie you down. There are thousands booked in advance for the great occasion. We'll have every West of Ireland relative visiting us as we're within walking distance of the park but they'll come laden, I have no doubt. Our own John McCormack is to sing at the High Mass. They're building a magnificent open-air altar to accommodate the crowds. side streets are dotted with wayside shrines like these, erected in every case by members of a household. Towering high above the Lippy Keys, the giant liners which have brought thousands of worshippers from the United States serve as floating hotels for their passengers during Congress week. The capacity of the city and its surrounding villages is taxed to the uttermost and many pilgrims find accommodation under canvas. February 7th, 1937. My dear cousin, it was a disappointment that you couldn't manage it for the Congress, but what matter? There'll be other times yet. Jack, Tom and Kitty are all well, and all still unmarried. Very comfortable, lovely homes of their own, and I think it is too bad they have not ventured. They may do so yet. In Ireland we don't marry too young. I'm the mother of seven children now, Maureen, aged 16, down to the baby of 16 months. The babies, Rosaline, John and Bobby, keep me very busy indeed. Maureen, Geraldine, young Joe and Francis are the big ones. Time is just flying. 
I'm being blessed or otherwise with a large family, but it has laid its tail on me. Bobby, I remember as an absolutely adorable little boy. I was quite, I was quite sentimental about these little children. I had a sort of a, a gap of about five years after me. And uh, I suspect there were a couple of, of, of unborn babies in that five years. But then there were three children very close together, about a year apart. And Bobby was the youngest of them. I was sort of eight to ten and I absolutely loved him. He was a little soft, very appealing boy. We all remember Bobby as, as an absolute pedal. I've been getting regular letters from our poor old Uncle Pat in Vancouver. He must be very unhappy. Family broken up not knowing the whereabouts of his own children, over 80 and alone. But he is very odd, of course, a religious fanatic and always suspicious of his own. He sends me large sums of dollars, 200 at a time, for masses to be said for people who've been dead this 50 years. In every letter, he says he is not for this rotten world much longer. But he's still going strong. With all that piety, he's such a bitter man. There are some people with no love in them, I'm afraid. October 14th, 1938. My dear cousin, since I last wrote to you, I buried my darling little Bobby, a lovely blue-eyed boy, two years old. I've never really recovered from the shock of his death, as I found him dead in the cot beside my bed after one day's illness. Just a touch of gastritis, we thought. But he must have got convulsions inwardly and passed away in his sleep. An exceptionally fine boy, healthy and stout. There are times when I find the separation from him almost too much to bear. But God's will be done. The cross might have been a greater one. We've had 18 years of happiness and success. I've still six healthy, intelligent children. And that is something I must be grateful for. It was totally bewildering that that uh, a s small healthy little boy was there one day and he wasn't there the next day and we had this thing called a death it was it was quite extraordinary because there was no lead up um but it did make an enormous difference we were terribly worried because our mother got so strange for a while she simply Oh, she went on with her business she didn't have a breakdown or she didn't disappear but um 
she was totally withdrawn in herself. She was very, very remote and you were very careful, very worried about getting close and bothering her. My father, of course, was terribly protective about her too. Maureen has matriculated for the National University and hopes to study science. We'll have a college graduate in this family, DV, or maybe more than one. Frances is also very promising and has great musical ability for a child of ten. She gives me a little concert in the parlour in the afternoons when she's doing her practice. May, what about that trip of yours in 1939? Only yourself has the means to do it. I could never hope to go so far, having such family ties. You know once you laid your foot on Irish soil, your expenses would cease. Your loving cousin, Mary. You know from the news bulletins to which you have been listening that the great European powers are again at war that this would be the end has appeared almost inevitable for months past. Such an escape as we had a year ago could hardly be expected to occur twice. Yet, until a short time ago, there was hope. But now hope is gone and the people of Europe are plunged once more into the misery and anguish of war. ERA is on guard. The Nazi press has started an attack on ERA, accusing her of not observing strict neutrality. Era is not being fooled, so she is redoubling her defensive measures. Her air force is continually patrolling the coasts on the lookout for intruders, while armed boats keep a sharp eye open at and below sea level. The government of Era states that it has no intention of departing from its policy of neutrality adopted last September, but she is taking the precaution of placing her harbours and other coastal areas under military control, which of course is very wise. Era is ready with her answer if the Germans attempt any sort of aggression against her. August the 19th, 1940. My dear May, such a scare this summer about the possibility of invasion. We're living in a terrible time. They've taken down the names from all our railway stations to hinder any occupation force. The porter has to call out the town's name to identify it. The blackout is wearisome too. If you show a chink of light, the ARP man is knocking at your door. And people have to use a torch to get about after dark. Not much temptation to go out at night, with the buses off at 9pm and no cars on the road. Still, life has to go on. Where are the lights of London town? Somebody's gone and turned them down. Turn them off my office day. Everybody's lost their way Oh, what a great big blackout How can I make my track out? How can I take 
We've moved to the North Circular Road, a bigger house and more select locality near the Phoenix Park. It needed a lot of overhauling and redecoration, but it was a bargain at £1,000 due to the depressed state of the housing market, so we took the chance. I hope Joe doesn't kill himself with the work it'll involve. He's up on ladders, plastering and painting every spare moment he gets. No question of skilled labour now. They have all gone to England for the high wages and the munitions. And materials are impossible to get with a ban on imports. That move reflects one of the characteristics of my mother, that she had great pretensions to improving her station in life. She had infinite plans and ambitions for the family in general, and one included moving to a good house at a fine address. So we were in a nice little cul-de-sac off the North Circular Road, and we were very comfortable there, and suddenly then we make this move to a great, big, uncomfortable dilapidated house which was on the North Circular Road itself at that time quite quite a grand place to be we didn't like the move at all because uh, we went to an uncomfortable drafty house my father nearly killed himself fixing it but uh, it was it was her upward mobility and was very important to her I had a cablegram from our cousin John Judge in Canada asking me to go to him with the children for the duration of the war He'd pay all the costs of our transportation. Such a genuine soul. I couldn't imagine a more generous offer, although I wouldn't contemplate going, of course. I told Joe that if he allowed me to cross, he'd not see me again. John and I would rule the roost. I might even fall for him. (laughs) We did have some fun over it. Thank God we can still have a laugh. I was often glad you didn't come to Ireland last September, much as I longed to see you. Americans stranded here were put to great trouble and expense trying to get back. I'll send this by airmail. Even then it may take 15 days and be censored about six times, I suppose. Marry. There was only the one plane involved in it because I seen her in the searchlights that night. And the, and the shells, the, the scrapping from the shells started to fall on the roofs in the avenue. You could hear the plop, 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 plop from the shells. And myself and the father down here, the scrapping started to, to fall. Myself and my father run to go into the house and as we got to the door. Bang, down comes the, the big one on the north strand. Blew the hinges off the door and threw the two of us onto the floor. Lifted us off our feet. Blew out the windows and all. So lucky enough, we got up. But the cider wasn't very far away. Went went out onto the North Strand. And we met several people. Some of them said it was the church. Others said it was the, the convent. There was a, an orphanage there. So we decided to go up. And we went up. I said the North Strand was in bits. Came right down on the tram tracks and the cobblestones. November the 2nd, 1941. 
My dear May, thank God we're all okay, although we've had such a trying experience in the summer. Bombs were dropped all around us, one in the park itself, and we've had a miraculous escape. The North Strand area was flattened with over 30 dead and many injured. It would seem that Dublin was bombed in error by German planes on their way to Belfast, which has been getting a bad time because of its shipyards. Era, of course, is neutral and not at war with anybody, though it doesn't feel like that sometimes. The British are angered by our refusal to go in on their side, but our big man de Valera won't give them an inch. It must be said, though, that he is humane about our poor fellow countrymen in Belfast. The fire brigades are dispatched over the border to help with the worst raids. We've all been issued with gas masks. They're dreadful objects, making it very difficult to breathe. With my bronchial chest, I said I'd prefer to take my chance with the gas. We have ration books for almost everything in the food and clothes line, and every now and again supplies dry up completely but the country folk help out with a couple of chickens and some butter whenever they come to visit. We'll never run out of potatoes, meat and cabbage in this country, so we won't starve. I must only hope we may all be spared to see each other, though we may be very much older. There's talk of a flying trip by Clipper after the war at a very reasonable charge, £20 from fines to New York. Climb upon my knee, sunny boy Though you're only three, sunny boy You've no way of knowing There's no way of showing What you mean to me, sunny boy June the 17th, 1942 my dear May, I must give you the sensational news of another son to our family, Billy, now aged six months. He came as a great surprise at my age, 47. My remembrance of the little lad I lost will never be obliterated, but we're all charmed by this new arrival, and he's completely spoiled by everybody. He's a great pet, and I've no shortage of minders at this stage anyway. Born on Maureen's 21st birthday. It sounds awfully funny, May, doesn't it? The funniest thing about that episode is that nobody was told about it until it actually happened. Uh, it was a time when there was no discussion about uh, sex and that followed that there was no discussion about new babies. And my mother, in fact, was particularly sensitive because as she was 47 years old and grey-haired, she felt embarrassed about having a baby uh, to the extent that she didn't go out by day for months before his arrival and she would only go out in the evening with my father. So when he did come, the neighbours were astounded that we'd suddenly acquired a baby. I don't... I don't mind grey skies You make them blue, sunny boy Friends... Friends may forsake me, let them all, let them all forsake me, I still have you, sonny boy. Poor old Uncle Pat keeps sending me the dollars for more and more masses. 
He sends me also from time to time a little present for my Christmas dinner. He must have little or no money left by now and has got very senile at 87. At one stage he had suspicions that the priest and myself were not doing our duty and having high masses said. The stipend fixed by him was five dollars for a mass. He certainly lived in the past when a dollar meant something. The choir alone would expect more than five dollars. So I had to use my discretion and get low masses offered instead, although I never told him so. The priest told me that I was perfectly justified in doing so, that one mass was as beneficial as another. God grant we all get the benefit of them. As we sit by our firesides, with our families happily around us, our thoughts should go out in sympathy to the millions of our fellow beings, who for four and a quarter bitter years have been deprived of every worldly solace and comfort which we know tonight to the millions who are homeless, who have lost all that they had and those who were dearest to them, who have witnessed such scenes of horror and experienced such utter anguish that they can scarcely hope ever to be really happy again. We should fervently thank God that we in this country have been so far spared from all this evil and should pray that we may continue to be so spared to the end. The long and fearful war which has devastated Europe has at last mercifully come to an end. And my first object in speaking to you tonight must be to try to express the gratitude to Almighty God with which all our hearts are full. I am assured that we shall be able to arrange for a day of national thanksgiving. November the 19th, 1948. My dear May, I've not been myself for a good while, so I've neglected my correspondence, which I very much regret. I've been feeling very poorly. I suffered from bronchial congestion, as I told you, but in addition I was generally all in and badly affected with nerves and depression. Writing was something I couldn't find the heart for, and I believe many of your letters were lost with the shipping casualties in the last years of the war. My illness was due mostly to the strain of working hard, rearing a baby without help, and putting up with the miseries of food and money shortages. I had nine to feed, all with healthy appetites, and the clothing coupons gave me a real headache. I had a very trying time and at 53 I wondered how I managed it at all. But for the past two years the country has been getting steadily on its feet, thank God. Food is plentiful. I can venture to say that we're eaten out almost by foreign tourists. They're coming in their thousands from England and the continent to get beef steaks, cream, hams and sausages, and going back with a new rig out too. Smiling at me Nothing but blue skies 
April 13th, 1949. My dear May, Maureen was married after Christmas, the first one to leave the nest. She wore a bridal blue two-piece and a beaver lamb coat for going away. We had a very nice reception for the relatives and friends in a city hotel. Fifty-four guests. It was a big outlay for us. But with the first wedding, it's hard to leave anyone out. She is very happy and we'll be living just 16 miles from home. Michael is a doctor who's making a practice for himself in a little seaside town called Donabate. Geraldine expects to follow her example in the next year, but the housing problem in the city may cause a delay there. New housing is scarce and slow to go up, what with labour disputes, government red tape, delay over housing grants, etc. The costs are high for a young couple... I suppose poor old Joe and Mary will have to come to the rescue. Frances has given up the teaching to become an air hostess with Aer Lingus. Joe wasn't too pleased after we'd put her through the university. But the job is well paid, and of course a more glamorous one. We hope she'll be on the American flights when they come into operation. Wouldn't it be wonderful if she could get as far as Seattle? When I joined Aer Lingus, because it was new and it was interesting and it was much better paid than teaching, they were initially quite shocked that you would do such a thing. My mother quickly came round to the idea of that it was fine because she was dazzled by the publicity and the pretty uniform and all of that. My father was a bit slower about it. He thought it was a waste, but he didn't share her intense interest in the way we were going to live our lives anyway. He just... He just wanted to see us being successful in our spheres. Thank God you're in good form again after your setback in health, May. I can't even let myself think how I'd feel if Joe and myself were separated. We're great old pals. While the young folk have their interests, he and I have ours. We often sit and just talk about the old times... Sometimes we take a stroll downtown and maybe sit into one of the new lounge bars. Irish pubs are much improved from the men-only sawdust on the floor days. And it's no disgrace for a woman to be seen in one as long as she has a companion. I enjoy a sherry and whiskey mixed. Joe has a couple of bottles of Guinness Stout. I also have the occasional cigarette while he has his pipe. You'll smile, I know but I just want to show you how little it takes to give us an interest in life. Since the war started, we haven't had a holiday together, although we had the free rail travel. With a large young family, the place for us was at home, and I may add, we begrudged spending much money on ourselves. April the 8th, 1958. My dear May, 
Old Joe's retirement became effective on January the 1st. His colleagues gave him a grand farewell, plus a wallet of notes, a fine fat wallet at that. He was thrilled, as he didn't ever believe he was so popular with the staff. Now he's pottering around, finding more than enough to do with our garden and a large allotment. Nothing seems nearer to his heart than digging the soil, going in for tomatoes and salads, and maintaining the old place. The countryman's instincts are still strong. He was offered a part-time job in a travel agency, but he's worked long enough, and we've only Billy to finish off. He's glad to have reached his 65th birthday enjoying such good health. Not many men can say that. He's a great man for the music. We have Trovatore or Maritana on the gramophone even while he's shaving. He strops his razor in time to it. It certainly gets us going in the mornings. His collection of records is his one extravagance. I have a houseful when the grandchildren come to visit. Frances with her four, Maureen six, Geraldine's one. My living room scarcely holds them. I like to see them, but I like to see them go also. I guess, May, that the writing on the wall says, Marry, girl, go slow. December the 8th, 1966. My dear May, it was nice to meet your cousin Gladys when she visited recently. She was greatly impressed by her first visit to the old sod. She just couldn't get over the friendliness of the Irish people. No introductions necessary. I assured her that it's only towards Americans that we're so friendly. There's an aloofness towards the British, and Europeans haven't much in common with us. While being friendly towards Americans, we're also holding out the hand of friendship for their dollars, of course. Tourism is becoming the second major industry after farming. In other areas, the country is plagued with strikes. Workers' demands becoming higher and higher. Working hours shorter and shorter. Going socialist, Joe says. We shall Everybody cut! There was a boy there. There was a boy along with me, you know, and he got hit by the bottom of the bottle, broke on his head, his head, you know, and he was bleeding like anything. April the third, nineteen seventy. My dear me. You asked me about these problems in Northern Ireland. It's really hard to define it. It is not actually a war, but a feeling of resentment between two sections of people, Unionists and Catholics. The former, who are Protestants, want to remain under the British crown, and the Catholics are totally opposed to it. This bickering has gone on for generations, 
and these people will never come into our southern part of the country. We're living in great peace with Anne and Billy. Billy advanced himself in a very short time. At 27 years, he's been promoted to chief engineer in his company. When the second generation passes on, I expect all the correspondence will cease. I feel the slowing down. The pace is not so hectic anymore. The grandchildren, 23 of them now, I have to keep track of the birthdays. They're growing up fast. We'd like to see one for Billy and Anne to carry on the line in the house here, but nothing so far. I don't think I'd like to be raising a family in this age. It's a different world. God bless you both. Your loving cousin, Mary. My mother died uh, very peacefully, quite suddenly, in 1978. Um, my father, it was his habit to bring her in a cup of tea and then to go and get her breakfast. And in between the cup of tea and the breakfast, he found her lying back against the pillows, dead. It all happened in a couple of minutes. I presume it was a heart attack. Uh, she was about 85 and he was three years older. Um, she, uh, she was never ill, so I was very happy that she went like that. It was much the best way. <laughs> 